Lifestyle, the way in which we live our lives. It's something formed throughout a series of decisions, whether intentional or accidental. But if our lives are to reflect the lifestyle of Jesus, it should be built with care. And as we allow God himself to form what he will in us and through us and around us, our lives are soon collected in a beautiful compilation for God's glory and for our good. Welcome everybody to the weekend, and I just want to wish all of the dads who are out there a very happy Father's Day weekend, and I just really hope you have a good time of uh, celebration and enjoyment on this special day for you. And I have a request I want to make. Actually, it's a bit of a challenge. I want to challenge all the dads who are out there, and actually every man who's out there, young or old, to be willing this weekend to step up to the plate and be a hero. Be a hero to your friends. Be a hero to your spouse if you're married. Be a hero to your family. Be a hero for the church of Jesus Christ by taking a step forward and being willing to live the Jesus lifestyle, even if it costs you, even if it means that there are those who will turn against you or dislike you or even hate you. Are you willing to do that? It takes a hero. In fact, one of my favorite hero stories is a trilogy you probably have heard of and watched. Maybe you read the books by J.R. Tolkien. But it's that trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Maybe you're familiar with it. I just love the characters in this story, especially Frodo, who is as unheroic as you can possibly be. He loves home. He loves his family and yet he's invited into this adventure, and he is changed forever. At the end, he comes back home again, and he really is now a hero. He has fought, so to speak. He has struggled. He has suffered for family and for loved ones and for home. But now that he's finally home, he's not at home. He longs to go across the distant sea to the undying land, the reason he wants to go to the undying land is because something has happened to him. He's been changed by his journey, by this epic. All of a sudden, there is this sense in which he doesn't necessarily miss the life and death threats, but what he misses is his experience with the immortals and all that they taught him and all that he gained by being with them. He longs for a land of peace. He longs for a land of rest. You know, there were 12 men who followed Jesus. And there were women as well who were very close to our Lord. And their lives, until they met Jesus, were very uncommon, very unheroic. But after spending three years with Jesus, their lives changed dramatically. And after the resurrection and Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and in them, they were never to be the same again. And you get this sense that there was this longing in their hearts 
to cross the sea, to the land of the undying, to be with the immortal Lord Jesus Christ. But they can't go right away. They have to stay. Because God has a mission and a purpose for them, just like he has for you and he has for me. Right now, we're to be his heroes here until he calls us home. But being his heroes means we have to be willing to put up with some of the struggles and challenges that come by living out the lifestyle he's called us to. I want to welcome you to this last season in our year-long series where we've been moving through the Gospel of John and talking about what it means to love God with our minds and with our hearts. And in this last season, as we talk about lifestyle, so far we've looked at how do you live a fruitful lifestyle? How do you demonstrate the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control that Christ can bring? And then last weekend, Pastor Trent talked to us about how to live out a truly godly lifestyle of friendship toward others. Well, this weekend, I want to challenge you to join me in thinking about how to persevere when we're facing challenges and we're facing suffering. You know, the longer I live in this world, the more I ache and long to be home with the Lord. How about you? It reminds me of the words the Apostle Paul who came to know Christ after the resurrection when Jesus ambushed him on the road to Damascus. Later on, when he was writing to Philippians, he said these words. He said, For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me, But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Can you feel that? Can you sense that in your own heart? Like I said, I really can these days. It's like I want the Lord to come back yesterday. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Or I just want to go to be with him. I'm tired of this world. I I don't like what it's like. I don't like where it's going. I long for the Lord to come. But until the Lord calls me home or the Lord returns, I've got a big responsibility, and so do you. So I want to make a promise to you this weekend. The promise goes like this. I want to promise you this, that if you take to heart the words of our Lord this weekend that we're going to read in just a few moments, you're going to find the strength and reasons for persevering in this world for Christ until he calls you to the other side. So if you've been discouraged or dismayed with what's happening in this world, what's happening in our culture, if you felt like just washing your hands and giving up, I promise you, if you take to heart these words, you're going to have a different perspective. You're going to be willing to persevere, though you still long to be home with the Lord. Now, the passage we're going to look at is found in John chapter 15. So why don't you take out your Bibles wherever you are at our venue or at one of our sites, or if you're joining us from someplace around the world online, and let's look at this passage together. John chapter 15. Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. If they had listened to me, they would also listen to you. 
They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what is written in their scriptures. They hated me without cause. But I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. In other words, what Jesus is saying to him is, look, if you're going to follow me and be devoted to me, you're going to experience some difficult and challenging times. The world's not always going to like you. The world may even hate you. Now, in our Western culture, we've not really experienced a lot of that, but there are places that I go on behalf of Wooddale Church around our world where every day believers experience literal threats on their lives because they follow Jesus Christ. You know, Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in about verse 12. He said to them, anybody who seeks to live a godly life is going to be persecuted. I promise you this, and I wish I didn't have to say I promise you, but I know it's the result, that your children, as they go back to school this year, are going to be persecuted to some degree, whether they're shunned, made fun of, belittled, left alone, if they truly seek to live out a Christ-like life at school. You're going to experience some degree of persecution at work. It's going to happen maybe even in your family. If you try to live for Jesus in this world that's, being, that's increasingly hostile towards God and his word, if you're really going to carry out the ministry that he's called you and me to carry out while we're here, you are going to get some, some pushback if you haven't already experienced that. So how do we persevere? How do we not let it get to us? How do we not quiet ourselves down and circle the wagons and, and kind of ignore the world? How do we live in a very truthful way, a very sincere and genuine and authentic way? Well, there's a couple of principles I want to invite you to take a look at with me that are going to help us out. Here's the first principle. Ready? Serious followers of Christ will experience radical conflict in this world because of the radical change that Jesus has brought into their lives. Jesus brings change to us. He brings change in our language. He brings a change in our thinking. He brings a change in our behavior. He brings a change in our values. He brings a change in what matters most. And the world can't help but notice that change. And you know, some people in the world are attracted to that change because they're looking for change. But the reality is some people are very discouraged by that. They are very against that kind of change in our lives because they don't want it in some way to infer that they need to change. They like their life perhaps the way it is. They want to live their life on their own terms. I guess if we were to break it down, what we would say is that there are probably three reasons why 
the world oftentimes will resent you and me being the followers of Christ. And the first reason is the whole issue of authority. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in the text that we read in John chapter 15, Jesus talks about the fact that they hate, he says, they hate you because they hate me. They won't listen to you because they did not listen to me. And when Jesus spoke, he spoke his word as the truth. Not a truth, but as the truth. Jesus never put his words out for public opinion. He didn't worry about what they thought about him on The View. He didn't worry about what Sean Hannity had to say about him. He didn't worry about, you know, what um, uh, some other uh, commentator would think or say about him, Bill Maher or somebody like that. He wasn't interested in CNN or Fox or MSNBC or Newsmax. He didn't care what anybody else said, and he doesn't care at this very day what anybody else says or thinks or has an opinion about what he says. What he says does not rely on our vote, does not rely on our approval. When he speaks, he speaks as God. His word is the truth. And that just goes against our culture these days, which doesn't like the idea that there's some truth out there by which all of us have to conform our thinking and our behavior. We want what we believe to be truth, to be true, even if our truth contradicts each other. Whatever's right for you is right for you. Whatever's right for me is right for me. In fact, I came across this little article on Focus of Family I want to share with you because it encapsulates so much of what you and I are wrestling with and what our kids are wrestling with in our culture today. Let me read it for you, all right? Here's what it says. Whatever happened to the truth? In our world, the idea of ultimate truth something that is true at all times and in all places and has relevance for our life is about as extinct as a dinosaur. In fact, nearly three out of four Americans say there's no such thing as ultimate or absolute truth. And the numbers do not look much better among those who claim to follow Jesus. In fact, they came across the uh, research that was done by Probe Ministries. And according to their research, about 70% of those who claim to be born-again followers of Jesus don't believe there's only one way through Jesus to eternal life. I hope that's not true. But even if it's 60 or 50%, that's mind-boggling. How can you possibly call yourself a follower of Christ and believe that there's more than one way to have a relationship with God other than through Jesus himself? The article goes on and says, in a society where ultimate truth is treated like a fairy tale, an outdated idea or even an insult to human intelligence, the motto of the day becomes, whatever. Believe whatever you want. Do whatever seems best to you. Live for whatever brings you pleasure, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And of course, be tolerant. Don't try to tell anyone that their whatever is wrong. Where does that leave us? If we have ultimate truth, it gives us both a way to explain the world around us and a basis for making decisions. Without it, we're alone. We're just six billion organisms running around, bumping into each other with nothing unifying to work for or believe in. It's every man or woman for him or herself. And we're without a purpose. 
if there's no true story of where we came from and why we're here, then there's nothing that really gives our lives meaning at all. So the question I want to ask you is simply this. Do you want to know and live by the truth? Or simply having someone tell you whatever you believe and feel is a truth. The world, the culture, seems to vote here. I just want to live by a truth, my truth. Jesus says no. There's not a truth you can live by. It's not like you can pick and choose. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. No man comes Father but through me. Not only that, but Jesus affirms Genesis to Revelation as being God's word to us. And if you can stand on that fact, if you can stand on the truth, imagine you standing here, all right? If you can stand on the truth, you can be so secure. Life then makes sense. If you don't believe in the truth, my goodness, as the article says, you just are being tossed by the winds and the waves. There's a second reason, however, that I think the world sometimes will oppose you and me. It's not because, simply because of the authority, but also because of this whole issue of ownership. I mean, Jesus makes it very clear in the passage that we read that we no longer belong to ourselves. We actually belong to him. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he describes himself and believers, oftentimes uses this whole idea of being servants or slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize how in the face that is for many people in our culture today? A culture that values individuality, values independence, this whole idea of being owned by somebody, of, of, of serving somebody, of belonging to somebody, we hate that idea. We, we uh, are repelled by that idea. But the truth is, all of us, you and I, we are all owned by someone or something. None of us is truly independent. We've talked about it before. From the very beginning, you are being influenced by others. And that influence forms your worldview. So in that sense, whoever influences you the most has ownership over your life. I was reading about a psychologist by the name of Tom Stafford. And he was talking about how easily we are influenced by lies. Lies that we can be made to believe are the truth. And he says this goes all the way back to uh, the Nazi leader Joseph Goebbels who said if you repeat a lie often enough, people will begin to believe that it is the truth. And oh my goodness, is that happening in our day of the media? Whether it's social media, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, we're being fed a constant stream of information. And not all of it is true. And you know, if you hear it long enough, you can begin to believe that those things you're hearing that are not true are the truth. So Tom Stafford talks about an experiment that was done to see if that really was the truth. And so he said in the experiment, they would gather a group of people, they'd bring them into the room, and they would put a bunch of statements up that were true and false. For instance, they would put a statement up like, a prune is a dried plum. That's true. Followed by a date is a 
dried plum. That's not true. He said after doing a series of these, they would then send the people away and maybe a few days later or a week afterwards, they'd bring those people back and they'd put the same list up, but they would add new things. What they discovered is that the majority of the people no longer questioned if something was the truth. They just accepted it as truth. That's because they had seen it before. And because of repetition, the more they saw it, the more they just accepted that must be a true statement. Whereas the newer statements, they had to think more about. Now, if it could happen that easy, an experiment like that, imagine what's taking place in the life of your children and grandchildren or your life as you receive a constant stream about how you should think of sexuality, how you think about the beginning, the conception of life, how you should think about your body, how you should think about your gender, how you should think about any number of things. Who owns you? Do your peers own you because they're the ones that are determining how you think about yourself in the world? Is it the company that owns you? Is it the economy that owns you? Is it a political party that owns you? Is it a celebrity that owns you? Is it your parents that owns you? Is it a religion that owns you? Is it a religious leader who owns you? Or does God own you? Does the truth of God's word own your life? All of us are being influenced. How are you being influenced today? That's a great question, isn't it? And in fact, for those of you who have families, you may want to take some time today or this week to sit down and find out from them who influences how you think and how you feel. What are you hearing in the classroom? What are you reading about yourself and about this world and about life? And make sure that the Word of God is underpinning all of this. That the Word of God becomes your screen or your way that you evaluate what you're hearing so that you hear what is truth. Because it is true. The more you hear something, the more it's sent out there, as shocking as it might be at first. If you hear it enough time, It'll wear you down, and pretty soon you begin to make excuses, you begin to reason, and you accept things as true, which at one time you would have never believed. I mean, can you believe the stuff that our culture now accepts as truth, which 10 years ago would not have even made the news. It would have been so ridiculous. There's a third aspect, a reason why the world can sometimes hate us. It's not just because of the authority of God's word that we live by and the fact that he owns us, he influences us, he determines how we think and behave. Number three, it has a lot to do with our message. The message that God has called us to bring to this world that is around us. And it's this message of God's love is this message of Christ dying for us. It's this message that we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior. Now, to those of us who have truly experienced Christ, it is the greatest message in all the universe. But for some people, this message that a Savior is needed, to them, it's a message of weakness. You know, even in Jesus' day, even in Paul's day, The message of the cross, as Paul says, seemed like foolishness to Greeks and to Jews. 
It seemed like weakness that one must die for everyone else. And in fact, there are people who look at you and me as followers of Christ and they consider us to be weak people. I mean, that's our psychological crutch, we're told, that we, that we depend on, that we need. You know, some people just, they just need religion. Or they can't function. They're not smart enough. They're not responsible enough. Now, you would think that if Christians are truly that weak, that the world would look at us and pity us. Why does it turn around and persecute us or hate us or mock us or try to convert us to embrace a secular view? It's because of this. It's because if you and I are right, that we are weak to save ourselves, that only God can save us, that means somebody without Christ, they're truly the ones who are weak. And none of us want to appear that way. Yet what does Paul remind us? When we are weak, what? He is strong. It is so opposite of the world, isn't it? The world says, put on bravado. The world says, you know, make yourself strong with your finances. Make yourself strong physically. Make yourself strong with, you know, steel confidence or, you know, whatever it is the world says will make you strong. Jesus says, my goodness, if you spend your whole life trying to be strong, you're going to end your life with nothing. You're actually very weak. Come, admit your weakness, and let me fill you with my strength. The joy of the Lord is my salvation. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who what? Who strengthens me. But the world doesn't always want to hear that message. Now, those are three reasons why you and I can expect to face some persecution at school, at work, maybe even in our families or our community. It's because we allow the authority of God's word to be over us. We see ourselves as being owned by the Lord. We've been bought by him. We belong to him. And we have this terrific message of hope to share. And not everyone accepts that. Not everyone likes that. And that leads us to our second and last principle. And that is simply this. Serious followers of Jesus are going to experience radical conflict because of the radical challenge that Jesus issues to them. If you go back and look at the passage that we just read a few minutes ago, What you discover is Jesus saying to his disciples, now I want you to go out and I want you to testify about me. That's the challenge. That's the challenge that you and I have been given. And that's one reason why the world, in many instances, hates us. They don't want to hear about the testimony of Jesus. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about grace. They don't want to hear about a hell. They don't want to hear about judgment. And yet you and I have not been given an option of whether we want to go out and tell them or not. We are obligated to go to this world, to go to those who we might consider our enemies and share with them the hope of the gospel. Now, let me put this in context by sharing with you a story about a friend of mine. I have shared some of his story several years ago with you, but 
I saw his picture recently, and it all came back to life again to me, and again, I was inspired by him. I'm going to give him the name Paul. I will not use his real name. And obviously, Paul lives in another country. When I met Paul, and I actually got a chance to interview him and tape his entire testimony, he shared that his father at one time had worked for the Dalai Lama, had been uh, responsible in the Dalai Lama's administration for a certain aspect of government. Well, when the Chinese came in and threatened the Dalai Lama, of course, he escaped with many of his administration with him and was received into a certain country and given a certain area where they could settle down, and the Dalai Lama then moved on for his own safety and protection. Well, this man who I call Paul, his dad was made the governor of that region. His dad was an ardent Buddhist, as all of them were, and his dad died. When his dad died, they appointed Paul to become the new governor of that region, which gave him a lot of power, and it gave him a degree of wealth and influence over others. And everything was going well in his life until he became gravely ill. He eventually had to go in and have tests done. They discovered that he was dying of liver cancer. He wasn't going to make it. So the doctors told him he might as well just go home and die. Before he went home and died, an evangelical pastor who happened to be in that region, a uh, traveling evangelist who heard about him, went to the hospital and tried to share Christ with him. At that point in time, he wasn't ready to convert and leave Buddhism and accept Christ. But he did offer to meet the evangelist another time at his own home. And so sure enough, the evangelist came and visited Paul at his home. And they were sitting across from each other having a conversation. And the evangelist again shared with him the hope of Christ and how it was possible that Christ could even heal him of his cancer. My friend Paul said to the evangelist, you know, none of my Buddhist priests or friends have come to see me at all while I was in the hospital or since I've been at home. At least you have shown me some compassion. And this God of yours seems to be compassionate. You may pray for me to be healed. And right there on the spot, he began to pray for Paul. Now, what happened next is a bit gross. I apologize for this. But all of a sudden, Paul began to vomit and retch and literally, literally tossed out of himself the cancer and was immediately healed. His healing was so profound and immediate that it changed his life. He gave his heart to Christ, and he began to witness to all of the Buddhists we had influence on. Soon, he started churches, and God was doing an amazing work, but the other leaders were antagonized by this. They were angry about this. They hated him, saw him as a turncoat. Who cares if he'd been healed? They didn't like what he was doing to their society. Now he's ruining their religion. So they threatened his life. But no matter how they threatened his life, he refused to stop speaking, stop testifying about the miracle that, had, that he had experienced in his life. So they did something terrible. They poisoned Paul's 19-year-old son, and he died. Now, you would think at that point, Paul would have become bitter and would have become hateful or would have at least moved away from the region. 
but he didn't. He stayed and he kept testifying. He stayed and he kept preaching. He stayed and he kept starting churches to this very day. They burned down his home. In fact, I have a picture of him his wife and his daughter standing in front of the home that's been burned down. It's just a charred mess. And when I first saw the picture, I said to my friend who introduced me to Paul, I said, there's something wrong with this picture. He said, what's wrong with it? I said, why are they all smiling? I said, how could they smile standing there? You've had your son poisoned to death. Now you've had your house burned down. I'll never forget what my friend said to me and then what Paul told me later on reason that I can smile is because I know that they don't understand. I know that they are like I used to be. And until they experience a miracle of God working in their lives, they're not going to change. And I'm willing to be that miracle. I can love these people because God loved me so much. You know, I asked you when I began this message if you would be willing to step out as a hero. Not just the men who are listening to me, but also you ladies, you young ladies. Would you be willing to become God's hero in this day and age by living under the authority and by the authority of his word? By living with him as the one who owns your life? You belong to him. Would you commit to testifying about him and sharing the message of hope that he's given you. And would you be willing, would you be willing to take on the challenge of speaking and living out loud for Christ, even though it may cause some to hate you, some to turn against you, some to mock you and belittle you? You see, what gives you and me the capacity to do that is the fact that God did it for us. Jesus endured our hatred when he died for our sins, your sins and mine, on the cross because his love was greater than our hate. Will you let your love be greater than the hate of this world? Listen, these last couple of years, as we've mentioned before, have not been shining years for evangelicals. We've become hateful. We've become hateful to the world. We've even become hateful toward each other over the most foolish things. Politics, vaccines, masks. We have listened and embraced lies that aren't the truth. We've been more willing to listen and believe a rumor or listen and believe something said by a a uh, commentator that we really like, then we have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus say? What did he mean? How does he want me to live my life? Would you step out and be God's hero from this moment on until he calls you and me to the other side of the sea, to the undying land? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. It's a strange, frightening world filled with so much chaos and upheaval, oh God. But Lord, we find find our footing in you. 
We find our strength in the truth. We are glad to belong to you. We're thankful that we have a mission and a challenge to be faithful to you, to speak forth your truth and love until Christ returns, you call us home. Grant us this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you next weekend.